Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you with us today, watching or in the house as we continue in our Mark series. I want to ask a question. If I were to say to you, have you ever had a watershed moment in your walk with the Lord, what would you say? Well, I guess it would depend on whether you knew what a watershed moment was, right? What is a watershed? Well, it is defined as a ridge, okay, or that, that pinnacle or peak of a ridge where water hits and it goes one direction or the other direction. It doesn't have a choice. It goes this way or that way, and the water sheds down into the areas from which it flows. And so that, that top area, if you will, the very top, that's the watershed. It's either going to go this way or this way. Now, in our lives, we often can talk about these in, in some sort of a, an idiom or a phrase that refers to a momentous moment in your life, the exact moment when you started changing your behavior. A watershed moment. We had a young family who shared with us that they had gone through high school, they grew up going to church, youth groups, everything, met a youth group even, but they kind of got walking away from doing the things that they did as a family. Life got busy, work got busy, and their children were in their fours and fives, and they were talking about something, and the dad said, well, yeah, well, that's, you know, the story of Noah, and their four-year-old said, who's Noah? And the next Sunday, they were in church. They said it was a watershed moment. It was a moment where we had to decide we got to make our faith more of a priority. Some of you were involved in watershed moments. I listened today to somebody who said that they were given a note by someone who didn't want to live anymore. And if it weren't for them responding to the call to be in youth work, they wouldn't have been a part of salvaging that life and giving them some hope in that moment. Was there a watershed moment in your life? I'm talking about those moments, not so much when you accepted Christ as your savior, child of God, but when your faith was tested. When it was on the brink of, am I going to look back, look around for other options, seek out other ways, or have I decided to follow Jesus regardless of what comes, those moments where our faith is at its highest test are often referred to as watershed moments. But society talks about watershed moments. In fact, um, in doing a little research for this message, I looked at what the world deems as kind of some watershed moments. And you could probably guess what they are. Just moments that occurred that kind of changed the trajectory uh, of any everything. Um, one, what, one that was listed, and, and one of the top 15 was listed, and, and this was a secular source. This wasn't necessarily a Christian-based source, so, so take this for what it's worth, but it says this. Um, the steam engine changed everything. It changed the complete game. It launched the Industrial Revolution, all cha complete change. The printing press 
was an absolute watershed moment was listed in this, this document. The smallpox vaccine was listed. The, it, it was even global. It, it talked about the Declaration of Independence by the United States of America changed the course of history. I mean, that was a major change. I mean, you can think about all these different things that were listed. Young people, the internet was listed as a watershed in society. But when it got to the number one Thing that was a watershed, it kind of took me by surprise. I didn't argue with it. I didn't disagree with it. I was just kind of shocked that the article I was looking at and some of the research that was being gathered would list this. And the number one watershed moment they had was the birth of Jesus Christ. Changed the globe at that moment. I was taken back by, they said, you cannot argue that Jesus Christ has impacted our society. In fact, you can't even write your check and write 2023 without acknowledging Jesus Christ because our dates and years are built on his life. But I I, I don't typically read comments because I don't like to get feedback from things I don't respect. So I thought this time though, I got to. This is a secular document. There's no way people are just going to let Jesus Christ be the number one watershed moment. So just for, for sheer entertainment, a one or two scrolls tops, okay? But the first one, I didn't have to go anywhere. The first one said, the last one, or the first one, is fiction. The rest are facts. First comment. The last one's fiction. The rest are facts. How many of you know someone in your life, not a show of hands, who looks at Jesus' life as fiction? How many of you know someone, when they hear about Jesus, they think it's just like this crutch that faith people need or some religious figure that, you know, is just like in the storybooks or felt boards. We all know somebody like that. You know, I look at that and there's almost like a sense of pity because there's a lot of believers who hear that. College students sometimes are the most prey to this. Listen to me. You read this and you want to feel smart. You want to be intellectual. You want to be like, yeah, that ain't us, man. And then you read stuff like that and you're like, uh-oh, am I, am I buying some hogwash? I mean, am I like doing what mommy and daddy did? I gotta poke some holes in this. But the reality is the statement that Jesus is fiction is one of the most uneducational things you can say. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is verified far beyond this Bible. And so if you disregard the Bible, if you do your work historically, you will see secular voices, secular studies, and secular sources that point to the life, death, and resurrection. For example, there were people living at the time of Jesus who recorded it not in Scripture. One of them was a Jewish historian living as a contemporary of Jesus' time. His name was Flavius Josephus. He wrote about Jesus' life. It's so interesting to read about Jesus outside of Scripture. He says this, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man. If it be lawful to call him a man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ. He appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. Secular sources acknowledge the life of Jesus Christ. To say he's fiction 
just isn't true. Secular voices have leaned into this, not necessarily ones that are without faith, but those who've looked at the scriptures and studied them for their validity. One being prized and famed lawyer, trial lawyer from the Honorable Society of Middle Temple, world record for consecutive murder defense trial acquittals in his 42-year career, writes, I say unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. But maybe sometimes you struggle with chronological snobbery. And if it isn't within the past so many years, you look at it as just like antiquated and, and created narratives. But what about Professor E.M. Blakehawk, professor of the classics at the University of New Zealand, a historian who approaches the classics as historical. And he tells you that the evidence for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ is better authenticated than almost all the facts of all ancient history. Yet there are many who read a comment section and go, oh, I guess maybe Jesus isn't real and I believe fiction. And their faith is being tested. Whose opinion are you going for? Who do you need to please? Who do you need to think you're smart or intellectual or up to the times? And the weight of shame or fear or struggle or not fitting in or being rejected or mocked preys on us. But see, Jesus comes along. And I'm sure he loves Flavius but it doesn't matter what he says. I'm sure he loves Sir Lionel Luku. I'm sure Ian Blakelock, but it doesn't matter what they say. Jesus comes to our text today, looks his disciples in the eyes and asks them a question that I believe you must answer in your lifespan on earth. Scripture's very clear. You get one go and you have to, to deal with this question. And it's a watershed moment in everyone's life. And here's the question. Who do you say I am? Well, my dad says, <laughs> who do you say? Well, mom has always said that. Who do you say I am? Well, my daughter, she really believes Jesus. No, 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 mom. Who do you say I am? Because that will determine the flow of so many other things in your life. And it's a watershed question that must be answered to handle the watershed moments of life. For it will change the course of both your life here on earth as well as all eternity. How do you answer that question? This isn't phone a friend. This isn't pull the audience. This isn't check to see if the TV says it's okay. Who do you say I am? It's our title today. We'll be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. We'll be looking at a few powerful verses in Scripture. We're going to open the Word after I pray immediately. 
Heavenly Father, use the gospel of Mark to stir in our hearts a passion, a passion to love you. But Lord, may it comfort our hearts in those moments we're tested. May we say like we sang today, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. Lord, would you give us the faith in those moments when we're most tested, the moments when we're on the ridge to choose your way, to choose Jesus' way. We pray this in your name, amen. And Jesus, he went along with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. We've been looking at our map and he's moving along. He's been in Capernaum in the Sea of Galilee area. He moved up into Tyre and Sidon. Now he's over here in Caesarea Philippi where he'll be beginning to make his way back to Jerusalem where you know, New Testament believer, what will occur there. And on the way, he asks his guys. He's got his disciples around him and it seems there's a crowd not far behind. He says, who do people say that I am? Now, what's interesting is some of your translations might say, who do the crowds? Some other uh, accounts in the gospel say, who do the crowds? The phrase or that word can carry a root to it to give the idea of the uncommitted masses. Those who are following me around because I can make food double, triple, quadruple. Those who want to see healings. Those who are bringing their paralyzed friends. Those who are bringing the blind to me. They're uncommitted, but they see that I'm a miracle worker. I want to know, what, what, do, they, what do they say? Hey, what, what's the scuttlebutt out there? The disciples chime in. Um, some say John the Baptist. Maybe Nathaniel. I don't know who says. Others say Elijah. And, and, and then maybe, maybe Andrew pops in. Well, some say you're, the, you're, you're one of the prophets. So they've heard what's out there. Jesus taking this in turns and asks them a question. But who do you say that I am? Who do you think wanted to answer for the whole group? You got it. You got it. If you guess Peter, you got it. I'll speak for everybody. You are the Christ. Ding, 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 ding. Right? You got it. You are the Christ. Peter rejects the notion that he's just a prophet. He rejects the notion that he's Elijah. He rejects the notion that he's John the Baptist. He is the Christ. And that word, and what he's saying is, you're the Messiah. You are the one that the prophets foretold would come. But keep this in mind. Historically speaking, many of the Jews would have believed during that time especially because it was taught so heavily by the rabbis that the Messiah would come along and set up an earthly kingdom and overtake Rome. And so they looked not so much for deity, but for someone who would come. And they lived on that promise and they hoped for that promise that one day Messiah would come. Who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. And a watershed moment is beginning it's, it's, it's welling up. 
The question has been asked and the moment now is coming. And it began with the statement that many refer to. You've heard of the great commission. Many refer to this as the great confession. You're the Christ. Can I ask you? Who do you say he is? Would you agree with Peter? You're the Christ. You're not just a prophet. You're not just a man. You're not that. You are God. You know, a moment is coming where Jesus is going to test their faith by sharing with them what is about to happen to him. And if it's happening to him and they're his disciples, that means it's going to happen to them. And so their faith is about to be tested. Jesus is going to crank this up. And I thought of these moments in our life when we get tested. And I thought I should give illustration of times when we hit these watershed moments. I can think of one specifically in college. You in, Chris, or are you out? It was a test of my faith. And specifically one evening, reading my Bible, I don't remember how old I was, but I know it was early 20s. I opened the scriptures and I went to what is often entitled the Hall of Faith. Do you know where that is? Are you familiar with the text? The Hall of Faith is found in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. These people went through watershed moments. And I noticed, rereading it in preparation for the sermon today, that there are some common traits said about the people listed in the hall of faith. Young people, y'all see the hall of fame. You go and see all these hall of fames. These are, I mean, these are the, the heroes of the sport, right? Well, scripture has what many call the hall of faith and it's it's the author of Hebrews giving account, almost like a ledger, okay, of people who were included and mentioned by name in the hall of faith. And there's some three things that I noticed. One, they all lived their life by faith, not by sight. They lived their faith not ever getting to see Messiah come. They died before the promise that he would come, came. The second thing I noticed, it's, a, it's, a, it's amazing. Scripture says this, the world was not worthy of them. Hebrews chapter 11, 38, of whom the world was not worthy. Wow, that's an incredible statement. These people are definitely pointed out as people of faith. And, and, and then I noticed this, very interesting verse. In Hebrews 11, it says this, they desired a better country. They didn't live for the things of earth. They lived their life for the things of heaven. Therefore, listen, 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 listen. God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. These are people that did not fix their eyes on the things of this earth, but they fixed their eyes on the things of heaven. That's where their focus was. Through every struggle, every difficulty, every trial, every focus, you'll find that none of them were perfect. In fact, many were failures. 
in many different ways, but they had faith. Hebrews 11 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, by faith, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. These people that are listed lived by faith. Do you know some of the names in there? But what's interesting is oftentimes you can go to moments in their life where they were at a watershed moment. There was one young man, he had a brother, and God asked him to bring an offering, give God a gift from what God has gifted you. And he selected willingly and gratefully and brought his offering. And God accepted it, but he rejected his brothers. And in anger, his brother hunted him down and killed him. His name, Abel, who by faith gave back to God what God had so richly bestowed on him. You know the other name in there? By faith, there was a man who was asked to build something a little strange. God warned him that rain would come. He had not seen rain yet. He told him to build an ark. There were no YouTube videos describing how. He said, build. It would be a hard, difficult, long, life-consuming task. And by faith, he began to build. He's listed in the hall of faith. By faith, Abel offered God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By faith, there was a woman who was asked to wait to deliver a son that was promised to her husband that would give him descendants as far as the stars and the sands. But the child would never come. And in that society, living barren was a wound on her reputation. For they often associated that with sin. Well into her old age, she waited and waited. And she's listed in the hall of faith. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who promised her husband not long after would be asked to sacrifice his son. Isaac, the promised one. Sacrifice him? Who, who would sacrifice their only son? Who would do such a God, how could you ask him to sacrifice his only son? This is the son of the promise. But Abraham trusted God. And in the last second, God provided a substitute. 
but it was a watershed moment where God saw Abraham's faith and surrender. There was a young man who had a group of brothers hate him so much, they threw him into a pit. Many of them wanted him to die, but they settled on selling him into slavery. He'd spend years away from his father he loved. Abandoned, rejected, would grow up in Potiphar's house. Lived such a life of testimony that he was bestowed leadership over the storehouse where they collected grain and when famines came, those same brothers would come and stand before him now, a chief leader. He was asked to forgive them. By faith, Joseph is listed in the hall of fame. There's another man talked about probably more than anyone else in the hall of faith. God came to him in a burning bush. At the age of 80, having grown up, coming down the Nile to leaving and spending years as shepherd in Midian, God called him to leadership. It was a watershed moment. He did not feel he was able to handle But by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And by faith, when Moses was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ. We never saw. Greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured seeing him as one who was invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch him. By faith, he crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. from a man who was fearless. Yet God came to him and said, be strong and courageous for the Lord your God goes with you wherever you go. His name, Joshua. By faith, a woman who had been living the life of prostitution, hiding in the wall, defined by her past and the people who abused her, by faith, hung a scarlet cord out the window and said, I will no longer be defined by my past. I will move to my future with the people of God. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what shall I say, Hebrews writes, for time would not allow me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, And David, who when God's people were being bullied, went and grabbed a sling instead of hid and confronted the mouth of a trash talker of God's people in the power of God. Watershed moments 
from people who were looking forward to something that they would not see in their lifetime, in faith. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they were seeking a homeland. What, what homeland? If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. They acted on a promise of a Messiah. They looked forward, and here we now are. He has come. He's standing right in front of Peter, and Peter says, you are the Messiah. And then Jesus says this. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He continued and said, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, you want to take a guess? Get thee behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And if you go, a little harsh. I mean, it's one thing. I mean, Jesus can change the guy's name. He's given him different names. I mean, it was Simon, and then he says, you shall now be Peter. But this seems to be a little over the top. It's like the parents who say, we want to name all our kids Bible names, like Joshua, Joseph, Satan, all Bible names. <laughs> oh, we have one of them in our house, you might say. But, but like, yeah, they're Bible names, but I, I wouldn't go with Beelzebub. I wouldn't do it. So what is Jesus doing here? This seems a little over the top. Get behind me, Satan. Satan means accuser. Satan means liar. Satan means the adversary. I noticed something. I don't know if you noticed it. If you're journaling along with me, take, a, take the next 30 seconds to a minute and circle how many and words you see. I'll help you out. And, 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 and. This is a lot to take in. Mark says, and he's saying it just plainly. These are bombs being dropped on the disciples. They may still have in their heads, and we see in the way they react, that Jesus is coming in. He's going to take over. Rome is done. We have our hero fight back the government. And Jesus is going, actually, this is how it's going to go. I must suffer many things. Don't miss the word must. We say as our church, we don't have to go to church. We get to go to church. Jesus is saying, I don't get to go to the cross I have to go to the cross. I have to. This is a must. 
And he began, I must suffer and I must be rejected by the elders. That's kind of the spiritual leaders of the day. I mean, I don't want to look bad in front of the spiritual leaders. I don't want people being all self-righteous and telling me I'm not like walking in the right path. I'm going to be rejected by the chief priests. That's the government officials. I mean, I don't want to look stupid in front of the government. And the scribes, I mean, the intellectuals are also going to like call us dumb if we follow you and be killed. Oh my goodness, you're going to die and three days rise again. Okay, that's probably you, but I'm not sure. And he said, this plainly. I mean, and, 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 and look at the next end. And Peter took him aside. Come here, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. Come here, come here. let's talk. <laughs> Jesus. Woo, you got excited. Um, got excited. Look at Thomas. Look at him. Look at him. This is all conjecture. What did Peter say to accuse Jesus? If he called him Satan, did he say, I don't think you know your Old Testament. I don't know if you know your prophecy. You're coming back to take over. What did he say? You're not going to do this this way. That maybe was in the form of a temptation to not go to the cross. What is going on here that Jesus says, get behind me. Satan. You don't have to guess. Jesus gives you why he says it. You are setting your mind not on the things of God, but the things of man. Every time your faith is challenged, every time you're at a watershed moment, I'm going to promise you, you're being tempted to set your mind on earth and not all of eternity. You're setting your mind on, I'm losing the dream here on earth. I'm losing my hope here on earth. I'm losing this moment with my family. I'm losing this opportunity with my daughter. You're setting your mind on the things of earth. I've lost this. You don't understand my past. I'm defined by my past. You don't understand what they did to me. I'm so hurt. There's no way I can forgive them. You don't understand what God's asked me to do in my life. It's such a difficult project. It's going to take me forever to build this. It's so hard. I'm so stressed out all the time. You set in your mind on the things of earth. Child of God, I do it too. It's almost like I need to renew your mind. Go to Renew Bible Church. Renew it. You're setting your mind on the things of earth. It's not what we're called to do. We are to look towards a better country. And this fires Jesus up. Get thee behind me, Satan. And I wanna, I wanna kind of keep the context and the energy. So, so I'm gonna read this next part here. Get thee behind me, Satan. And calling the crowd to him, his disciples said to him, he, he, he said to them, come here, come here. Hey, everybody come here. He said, come here, come here. All the uncommitted, everybody gather here, gather here. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He continues, he says, because for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jesus drops a watershed moment in almost a business analogy. He pulls out a profit and loss sheet. He pulls out the ledger, if you will, and says, who 
whoever will save his life, speaking of your physical life, will lose it. The it is there referring to the soul. The soul is the part that lives forever. It's not so much that her body has a soul, it's her soul has a body. The soul is gonna continue on, spend eternity, either separated or with Jesus. Forever would save his life, will lose it. But whoever will not, excuse me, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. So so the, the choice is lose my soul for the world, that's in the lost column. Lose my life for Jesus' sake, that's in the prophet column. Well, what does lose my life look like? He's clear. He told us what it looks like. What, what, what? Let's keep reading. Well, well, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, if you're ashamed to claim my name, if you're ashamed to wear my name, if my name comes up and you're ashamed of him, will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels? What's he saying? Well, very simply, the watershed moment for every child of God, at some point you get this, take up your cross. Take up your cross. And follow me. It's not, that's not a chain around your neck. It's not a t-shirt. Anybody listening to that time period would have heard Jesus say, take up your cross, and he might as well have said, Go sit in your electric chair. Because that's what a cross was. It was a torture instrument of the Roman Empire. Make no mistake, there was nothing special about a Roman cross. Many, many a man died on a Roman cross in torture. What makes the cross special, especially at Easter time, is who was on that cross. That's what makes it special. They knew what a cross was. And Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, get ready to sacrifice all the things the world has to offer. Oh, but it has so much to offer. It has respect. It has power. It has opportunity. It has degrees. It has fame. It has success. It's got money. Jesus goes, yeah, you could, you could go for that. Lost column, or you could give your life to me. Gain column. It's gonna be difficult, God, because there's gonna be times in my life, and maybe you've even had them in your life, where taking up your cross means standing up for Jesus for something, and your heart starts to palpitate. There's some young kids in here who who like even just saying, I'm going to church tonight. Oh, you're going to church tonight. What are you going to do? Sing worship songs? Get to college. The rest of your team, all incredible athletes, find out you're a Christian. You come walking into a locker room. They start up a worship song. Hey, is this you? Is this you? go to that college class and the professor's up there mocking everything you grew up being taught by your parents. 
you're in that business world and you know it's wrong, you know, and your Holy Spirit's saying this is wrong, but I mean, if you like kind of share that you're a Christian, I mean, that could, that's bad business sometimes. I mean, we probably should keep that off of the logo. And we don't want to say it, but there's times when we're like, I kind of want to just kind of keep it just on the down low. Jesus is going, let me hear it. I, I don't, don't, don't ever follow me, but just as an encouragement to you because of someone that spoke into my life. He said, Chris, you live your life so that there is not one person who knows you that does not know you're a child of God. Not one person. If anybody says your name, they know you're a child of God. Not perfect, not the one to be, but there's no one, there's no relationship that you have that doesn't know Jesus is your savior. Live your life that way. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of God. Can I encourage you in your life? Those moments are the moments when you're called to take up your cross. But did you know there's this huge crowd in heaven, if you will. They're watching. You say, they're literally watching me? No, 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 don't make it theological. I want you to understand this from the text that is written right after Hebrews 11. It says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him, you mean the entire time he was on earth, he was setting his mind on the things of heaven. You bet he was. Nothing on earth is gonna get him down. He will spend millions, if not countless of years of eternity with us forever despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. You've got a cloud of witnesses, the writer of Hebrews is saying, and they're like, come on, come on. You got, come on, live by faith, live by faith. I'm sorry, if I don't see it, I have trouble. No, 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 leverage your faith. It's like a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it grows. Maybe God's asking you to give something. It's gonna demand a little sacrifice. It's gonna hurt a little bit. And you might wanna do it your way. Or maybe God's calling you to do it the able way. And you're asked to give. Are you gonna do it resentfully? Or are you gonna to choose to do it cheerfully? It's like, it's like scripture's telling you, come on, cheerfully. We give back to God cheerfully. Do it the able way. Maybe in your life this week, you're gonna be asked a different question. You're gonna be asked to do something hard. You can be asked to build something. The author of Hebrews is like, there's like this cloud of witnesses around you. There's all these people who have gone before you that show you that faith is rewarded. Instead of questioning the clear instructions God's given you, build your life off of them. Build on the rock, not on the sand. It's as if Noah's up there going, come on, come on, trust me. Trust me with this. It did rain. It did and the ark saved us. There's such a great cloud of witnesses that maybe you're in a season of life. Maybe, ladies, you let this speak to you specifically where you're called to wait for something. It's so hard to wait. You don't understand what God's doing. Why wouldn't he come through? It's like Sarah's up there. Hebrews is saying, come on. You're surrounded with a cloud of witnesses. The idea is they're cheering you on. 
Do it without complaint. Wait with patience. He's going to come through. He will deliver on his promises. And these people didn't see all his promises come through on earth, but they came through in heaven. You may never see that loved one that you desperately love get completely healed of their sickness or their mental health struggle or whatever it is on earth, but in heaven, in heaven, if they know Jesus Christ is their savior, all of that will be gone. And millions of years will be spent with them with no, no debilitating way at all. Maybe you're being asked to surrender someone you're holding on to. In heaven, it's as if they're clapping Abraham way. Do it the Abraham way. Don't hold on. Let go. Let God love them more than even you. Maybe there's something in your life right now. Someone's hurt you so bad and the enemy's going to avenge them. Avenge, avenge, passive aggressive, manipulate, get them back, make them feel their pain, make hurt them like they hurt. Reject them before they can reject you. But heaven's going, no, 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 the Joseph way. Joseph way. The Joseph way. Forgive. Maybe you're being called to do something. You're being asked to lead and everything in your head's going, Lord, not me, not me. You don't understand. But it's as if heaven's clapping. Moses way, do it the Moses way. Not me, no, no, send me, choose that. Maybe you're scared right now. God's asked you to fight a battle of disease or sickness or struggle or pain or family pain. And fear is knocking at your door cloud of witnesses. Do it the Joshua way. God's with you. Maybe you are overwhelmed by your past. You can't forgive yourself. You define yourself by your mistakes. It's as if Rahab's clapping. Come on. Come on. It's time to move on. It's time to stop talking about what happened and it's time to start moving forward to what will happen. Do it the Rahab way. Maybe there's something God's asking you to confront in your life and everything in you wants to go hide in the side of the tent like Saul and avoid it. And God's telling you it's time to confront it. A great cloud of witnesses. Do it the David way. But New Testament believer, they all walked in faith, believing the Messiah would come. And we all know he did. So what makes you think he won't come again like he said? And you're called to live by faith. And blessed are you who believe without seeing. If anyone says, you know what Chris's problem is? He's got childlike faith. I'll say, I'll take that blow. Because I want to go to heaven and spend eternity with my heavenly father and live for his reward. And those opinions about whether they think I'm stupid for believing this, uneducated, dumb, needing a crutch, all the different things that are said, I'll take it. It hurts. It's not very fun. In fact, sometimes it can be really discouraging but we're not living for this earth, are we, children of God? We're looking for another way, another home. 
And maybe you're here today and you go, well, it's kind of then my way or, or the Jesus way then, huh? Um, so if I confess him and claim the name of Jesus, and, and you'll know this, you'll see this, you'll see this. You can say Lord, you can say God, you're good. Drop his name though? Oh, just God's been like, oh, I'm a follower of God. You can say that, you can say Lord, you're gonna be fine. You drop his name, oh, there is something about that name, isn't there? It's the name above all names. But that name gave us life for me. So I will gladly wear his name. Confess me, lose your life, it's gain. In fact, your soul will live forever with me. Deny me for the things of this world, you'll lose it. But isn't it encouraging that the main audience in front of Jesus is someone who denied him you are the Christ, Peter says. And he's the same one that when the pressures to please the world and to fit in and not to be called a follower of Christ came to him, he couldn't hold up to a middle school girl by a campfire. That's how strong the enemy is. A little girl. He's with Jesus. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. He cursed at her, even scripture says. But Jesus came to him. For all you out there who go, there's been times I know the watershed moment and I did not choose. I was ashamed of Jesus. I remember the moment. I kept my mouth shut. I didn't share. I didn't follow through. I didn't listen to his call. And it's been a rough ride. Jesus pulls Peter aside on a beach and says, Peter, yeah, do you love me? I love you. Do you love me? Yes, you know I love you. How many times did Peter reject him? Jesus said a third time, do you love me? I love you. Maybe today is your watershed moment. Maybe today your faith was right on that ridge. And Jesus had you come today. The devil wanted you on the way in, but the Holy Spirit wants you on the way out. And you could do it your way, but you will find that watershed, there's no hope there. I would encourage you to do it the Jesus way. Check the box. There will be times where it's difficult, but you'll never regret taking up your cross. We live in a generation where that's gonna be more needed than ever. I feel it more and more. I can't imagine those in the front lines at the workplace where the things of God are mocked continually. You'll have an option. You can shout back, or you could do it the Jesus way. You could get angry and never forgive, or you could do it the Jesus way. And so I want us to just take a moment here as we close to just process. Can you remember a watershed moment in your life where God 
called you to do the Abel way or the David way or the Joshua way? Anything come to mind? And then second, to answer the question, who do you say I am? And then third, to hear the words of this song because it's so counterintuitive to anything we are living in in our society. But it's the Jesus way. Scripture says the Son of Man came to serve, not be served. If you curse me, then I will bless you. If you hurt me, I will forgive. And if you hate me, then I will love you. I choose the Jesus way. He said, bless those who curse you. Pray for your enemies. If you're helpless, I will defend you. And if you're burdened, I'll share the weight. And if you're hopeless, then let me show you. There's hope in the Jesus way. He said, do things looking not only for your own interest, but the interests of others. Bear with one another's burdens, not point out each other's flaws. Look first at the blank in your own eye before examining in another's. The Jesus way is totally different than what our flesh, what the world around us does. Sometimes it cranks even more up. Paul said, pray for us, for we are in chains for preaching the gospel. And they prayed in those prison walls, came down. They worshiped in the most difficult hours of their life, not because of their own strength, but faith and the desire to choose the Jesus way. So there comes a moment in your life, child of God, where you've got to say, no turning back. I'll choose the love, no turning back. You got to choose, is he going to be enough? Or does the world have something to offer that he doesn't? He might ask you to surrender. He might ask you to show grace to someone who doesn't. He's going to ask you to do it the Jesus way. Take up your cross and follow me. I was six. I gave my life to Christ. I said after an evening message, 
Jesus, come be my savior. But I can think of three moments in my life where I was standing on the ridge. Chris, are you in? Oh, but God, that means. Chris, are you in? But that means that I won't be able to. Are you in? But Lord, you know I can kind of probably do. Are you in? I could think sometimes in high school where I kind of went the Chris way. But I'm so grateful for a Savior that even in my worst moments, he came alongside me, reminded me of the confession I made, and gave me grace. And now we move forward, looking forward to that second return. But as I look back on those Old Testament saints, that cloud of witnesses who moved from faith because of what they looked forward to, dying before the promise came, but I see he did come. And if he was faithful then, he'll be faithful now. He's coming back, child of God, just a little while longer. Continue to struggle, even at times suffer. But oh, that you're doing it the Jesus way. And the eyes of the Lord run to and fro, seeking to show himself strong to you right now. But he's asking you, live for more than just this earth. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your only son and allowing him to die for our sin that all who call on his name believe that he rose again will be saved. God, you so love the world. You gave your only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And for those who have called upon the name of Jesus, maybe even today is a watershed moment where you want to tell them, hey, Hey, I've prayed for you. The enemy is seeking you to sift you like wheat. But Peter, I've been on my knees. I pray that we would choose in whatever struggle we're going through with the cloud of witnesses cheering us on to take this next week the Jesus way. Amen.